Many years ago, when I was a new convert to Christianity, I remember working in a large office complex with about 2,000 other employees. It was a big company that touted having roots that could be traced back to the days of Christopher Columbus. They even had some of the early land deeds on display from the 14 and 1500s. My co-workers witnessed a drastic change in my life in those days. I went from being the life of the party, the man with a beer in one hand and a shot in the other. I went from that to born-again Christian. And not only that, I quickly became a student in the local school of ministry. It was not uncommon for me to be approached in the break room and be questioned about my faith. Normally, these lines of questioning would go something like this. Why do you want to believe in this? It's not that I want to believe in it. It's simply true. What do you mean it's true? I mean, it's objectively true. It's as true as the fact that we're sitting in chairs at a table in break room B on the second floor of building three. But what if I don't believe in that? If you didn't believe in this table, the table would still be here. Truth is truth. The Lord blessed these conversations, and I even got to witness some revolutions. Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke. Storytelling with a purpose to magnify Jesus Christ by sharing stories about what he has done and is doing in the lives of his people. Jesus Christ is the greatest revolutionary of all. Find out more at talesoftherevolution.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or anywhere you get podcasts. I'm calling this episode, Truth is Truth. I look back to those early days of my walk with Christ. God was showing me that while salvation is by grace through faith, our faith is in something. No, in someone, someone concrete, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He was and is a real person. He truly walked the streets of Israel. He was truly crucified between two criminals, and he died. But on the third day, he rose again, proving his power over death. These are facts. They can be corroborated, as my guest will tell you. For years, J. Warner Wallace has worked as a cold case homicide detective and has appeared on Dateline NBC and God's Not Dead 2. His written works include Cold Case Christianity, God's Crime Scene, and now his newest book, Forensic Faith. It's available now. And here now is J. Warner Wallace to tell you more. We get asked to go around the country and uh, make the case for, you know, do, do one of our talks, basically. And the talks I do are, are evidential apologetics talks. They're, they're why I believe Christianity is true from an evidential perspective, why I believe God exists from an evidential perspective. And so the talks I do are, are largely making the case for one of these two things. 
but I noticed that when you travel around the country and see how churches are structured and what, how who's leading churches and what their interests are, you you know that um, if you're somebody who's interested in why this is true, you're in the minority of Christians. A lot of folks um, have more trust their experience. Um, they had some experience that demonstrates for them this is true, and that's enough for them. And that's fine. Of course, uh, you know the problem is our young, our, our students, our our kids. When they meet other kids who've had other experiences, it's just experience for experience. And sometimes you'll see that, that that's all the only reason why you're a Christian because you were raised that way, or because you had some event in your life that you interpreted one way or the other. There's a good chance you're going to walk away. I discovered that before I could make a case for why Christianity is true. Sometimes with some Christian groups, I had to make a case for why we should even bother to make a case. And as I realized that that was important and, and becoming more and more important, I knew that the books I had, which made a case for either Christian theism, that's cold case Christianity, or for theism in general, and that's God's crime scene, those books don't argue for why we ought to take a reasonable evidential approach to begin with. So I realized that we have to make a case for why uh, we should take an approach that is more evidential or more um reasonable because a lot of us just you know as i ask this question around the country why are you a christian the response i get is sometimes good and, and oftentimes not so good in the sense that it sounds like every other religious believer because the, the kinds of responses i typically get and the most overwhelming response is that my parents were christians i was raised that way and then of course you get a lot of experiential answers you know i had an experience as a kid uh a prayer was answered i felt god's spirit moving in my life these are all good experience isn't a piece of evidence okay we have eyewitnesses who experience something or see something so i get that but if you think about it my family is divided between atheists and mormons and all my mormon family they they will tell you that they're mormons because they've had either they were raised that way or they've had a, a, an experience that they interpreted from the holy spirit that convinced them this was true and, and that's why i realized that our answers need to be better because we're, we end up giving the same kinds of answers that everybody gives and, and we are the one worldview, it seems to me, that could give a different kind of answer. Because we are, this whole thing comes down to an event that either occurred in history or it didn't. And if it did occur, we should be able to make the case for why it did, the way you can make the case for any event, including a crime. You know, I, we, that's what we do, right? We work these cases that are th you know, three or four decades old, and we say we believe they occurred this way based on evidence. And that's what we're going to try to do with the Christian worldview, too. And that, that's what would separate it from every other religious worldview. And for us to simply rely on an experience, and, and, and of course, you know, the Lord does provide experiences, but you're right about Christianity. It's, it's really the only worldview, the only religious system that has the evidence. Well, I think part of this, too, think about this. Sometimes we'll kind of, people will misinterpret the polar extremes of, of those of us who are believers. You know, either you're somebody who is more of an evidentialist, and or you're somebody who's more of an experienced person, or you're somebody who's more presuppositionalist. Well, I don't think we have to have all those polar extremes. I think it's a matter of embracing the both end of this. I, I think that experiences are incredibly important, but we'd all have to test the experience to see if it's what we think it is. So I don't deny that my Mormon family has had an experience, but I, I think if they were to test it, they would find it's not of, of God, it's not of the Holy Spirit, because the, the thing they're, 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 that they're saying that the experience confirmed for them, we know is evidentially false, because all the claims of Mormonism, we can actually disprove evidentially. 
the claims related to what happened in the first, you know, in the uh, thousand-year history of the Book of Mormon on the North American continent, the claims of Joseph related to the Book of Abraham, another piece of scripture that he that he uh, allegedly uh, transcribed. These are all things that we can actually test, and when you test them, they don't turn out. They don't they don't measure up. And so I, I think that it's not a matter of saying that the experience that people has is unimportant or irrelevant or cannot be used to, to determine if something is true, but we have to test it to make sure, trust it by itself is all I'm saying. And that's, that's true, by the way, for all eyewitness testimony, right? I mean, we don't just come in and anyone who comes in and says anything, we just believe it. We actually have this process I described in Cold Case Christianity where we, we test eyewitnesses to see if they are reliable. Well, you know, even our own experience, our own eyewitness experience of something needs to be tested in that way. Absolutely does. Um, and, and plus, this gives us a right interpretation of these experiences that we're having. And that's true. And that's one thing I talked about in the book, too, in Forensic Faith, was this idea that the great thing about the two ways you can know something, and I think you can know something through your own experience. We have a conscious experience that tells us something about consciousness, for example. Uh, but but we also can can know something is true by measuring the the data and, and and looking at the facts and building the case evidentially. The great thing about taking an evidential approach toward religious worldviews is not just that it'll point you to something true, because your experience could also point you to something true. Is that the evidential approach will also protect you from error, and sometimes your experience will not protect you from error. I know that just based on the you know all my siblings who have had experiences, but they are not in the truth. And, and they're, they're, you know, that's kind of a demonstration of the fact that you can't always trust your experience that's been unmeasured or untested. How's your relationship with these family members who are not Christian believers? Well, I think that, that for the most part, I'm, I'm, uh, they know what I believe. Obviously, I, I, I write about this stuff publicly, and, and I'm on social media, and so are my family members. But I mean, for the most part, I, I try to be respectful um, of my siblings, especially because you know my my dad has asked me to be respectful of them, and and so I'm always walking that tight line, right? You think to yourself, well, the, the sure sign of respect though is guarding people from error, isn't it? I mean, can you really say you don't respect people, or you respect people rather, that you aren't willing to to protect from error. I mean, if you respect somebody, you want to make sure that, that you you share the truth with them, right? So, so there's always this kind of tension between, well, what, what do I mean when I say I love my my family? Um, is it just a matter of what I mean is, is I, I'm nice to them? Is it niceness, or is there some you know? It's this constant struggle I think as Christians we all have by by trying to reflect the nature of God, which is complex in the sense that, that God is the perfect balance between justice and mercy, right? Truth and grace. And and we are always trying to find that balance ourselves as humans. You know, there's times when the justice side of me or the truth side of me just wants to say, look, this is true. You guys are wrong. And there are times when the, the mercy side says, you know, I just want to spend the evening you know, hanging out and, and loving on each other and not have to even address these issues at all. So I think there's always this um, tension between those two extremes and trying to find balance. I think it's really, you know, the call that does, you know, if, if God doesn't exist, life's a lot easier right? because whatever we say is true shapes our decision making. But we know as Christians, it's a little more difficult because we have this thing of truth that we have to uphold. It makes it harder. One thing I've seen, and I would like for you to comment on it, and you've probably seen this statistic, I think it's something like 75% of children who grow up in the church and then go off to their four-year university end up leaving the faith possibly forever. 
Yeah, it, 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 and it's, it's controversial, right? Because the claims, um, there are studies that have been done by a number of organizations. I've got friends who actually, you know, they deny that these statistics are reliable. But I, what I've done is I've, I've kind of collected them. And I've been collecting them for probably about uh, 10 years. And every time I see a survey or hear about a report, I go out and I find the source for it. And then I put it in an article, which is available at our website, coldcasechristianity.com. Now, in order to find it, because our articles are listed there by order of appearance, right? So this is an older article now that I update about once a month. So the way to get it is just to go to coldcasechristianity.com and go in the search bar there at the website and just type in the word update because it's the only article that I continue to update over and over and over again so it's in the title and um, the great thing about it is it'll, you'll, you'll find this updated document that you can download as a PDF file that has all the hyperlinks still in it if you download it as a PDF file what I've done there is collected all of the surveys all of the data related to the attrition rate of young people uh, during their college years and it's just called updated are young people really leaving Christianity in the last update um, I did was you know uh, January 8th so I haven't done anything since January because I haven't really read anything new that that, that made that you know that, that seemed like it warranted a response so but what you'll see there are dozens of surveys and articles done by a number of different organizations across all kinds of denominations of Christianity and some are just secular like Gallup or UCLA where they've, they've come in and said hey what, what's what's going on with young people in Christianity and, and what you'll see is a disturbing trend it's kind of hard to beat back the anecdotal experience that all of us have with young people because we all know somebody in that age range of 15 to 30 who has walked away from the church and we're kind of wondering if they'll ever come back now the only really um, kind of good survey I can find in terms of the number of people who will come back is by Lifeway and they put it at about a third of those who leave will come back at some point so so let's say we those statistics are somewhere between 55 and 80 percent and you'll see that's the range you, you see when people survey this. so let's say let's take the low side of that range and it's only 55 a third of those will come back so we still if we were losing a percentage every year I want you to think about this Pew just did a poll too in which they said that um, by 2035 the uh, number of um, Muslims uh, will out, out uh, surpass the number of Christians globally and it's not being done uh, by way of of, um, of uh, apostatizing or evangelism it's it's not that we that they are converting more people to Islam it is that, that Muslims have more kids than any other group right now, and and for the most part, uh, Christians have kind of bought into the secular notion of how many kids you should have, and they don't have very many kids anymore, especially in the West and in Europe. And whereas the Muslims in the same community have large numbers of kids, so sometimes it's like you know two uh, per couple compared to like four or five per couple. So what you'll see here is that the best indicator of a future belief is really the belief of your parents because so for so many of us that's adopted and, and continued forward so so I think we have to look at numbers in which young people walk away from the beliefs of their parents and take them seriously right that's an important because it's still one of the highest indicators so what we haven't done as parents it seems to me is held a faith that seems reasonable and competitive with the way people assess truth claims in culture because for the most part 
uh, when you've got somebody making a, cl- a, cl- a claim in the culture based on evidence and facts and historical method, yet we have us on this side holding any view, any view that was just based purely on experience or on the teaching of our parents, there's a good chance that at some point that kind of view is going to get knocked off the throne. And that's that's why I think it's important for us to, to take an approach to our, our Christian beliefs that is a little more thoughtful. And I don't think that this is something we're doing just in the 21st century that violates something about the history of Christianity. The Christian history is replete with really heavyweight thinkers and case makers. And I try to make this case in, in, uh, in forensic faith. I try to show you that this approach to Christian faith is very consistent with the teaching of Jesus, with the teaching of his students, the disciples, with the teaching of, of those the stu- those students who became the authors of Scripture, the, the canon writers, with the first uh, believers, who many of whom became famous um historically famous uh, apologists for the Christian faith, and even with the commands in Scripture for the rest of us who are here today in First Peter 3, this is a very rich, historically um, uh, driven, uh, evidential worldview uh, that's been really grounded in the claims of eyewitnesses who said they saw the resurrection. So I think from the very beginning, this is if we were going to take an evidential approach toward Christianity, we would be right uh, firmly in, entrenched in the um, rich, robust, evidential uh, history of Christianity. Forensic faith is, would you call it sort of an instruction manual as well for those who want to become case makers? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. Number one, I hope it's a call to action, right? It's, I hope it mobilizes us to, to, to think more carefully about how we, number one, even assess our beliefs, and then two, how we communicate them. So, so when I was looking at, you know, first responders are pretty good at understanding how to get motivated and how to respond to culture. Like we're constantly having to do that, right? We're set apart in some ways because we have training that's isolated. We isolate ourselves in training programs. Uh, we have a set apartness that, you know, we have a set of rules and regulations that apply to us in addition to the rules and regulations that apply to others. So we have this kind of set apartness, but we also are in, we are here for the express purpose of engaging culture. That's what we do on a daily basis. But you've got to be set apart in some ways in order to engage in other ways. So it's about this tension, right, between the apartness and the engagedness of who we are as responders. That's true for us as Christians, too. And there's some principles you can learn. Like if you said we wanted to be more evidential in our approach toward our beliefs, well, then one group you could look at for guidance of that are those are the people who have to make evidential cases every day. So I thought, let me just take some four aspects of what we do and see if I can use those four aspects to motivate us to be more thoughtful in how we uh, view our Christian beliefs. And and so I thought, okay, it comes down to this. Number one, all of us understand what our duty is. We swear into that duty. We make sacrifices for that duty, and we are very clear on what the mission is. Two, we train. We train repeatedly to get ready. It's more than just sitting in a classroom. Training has got a different nature altogether. So we get ready, and that puts us in a place where then we can go out and do our job. And then third, we learn how to discover truth. We learn how to investigate and figure out well, who did it. And then finally, we learn how to communicate that first to the district attorney and then help the district attorney communicate this to a jury. Well, it turns out these four aspects of who we are are really the same four aspects of who we are as Christians. Right? We don't just understand our duty. We need to get ready and train so we can mature in the faith. Then we need to figure out, well, how do we determine what's true? And then how do we communicate this to the world around us? 
And so I thought, let me take those four aspects of what we do and just create a, a book that helps you do those four things better. <laughs> so, so that's really what Forensic Faith is. I think it's really needed right now uh, because, you know, apologetics has been around for a long time. But there has been, in my own experience, a group of people who kind of act like we don't need apologetics. Oh, you just need the Holy Spirit. And I believe you need both. I think we, we need to definitely work on hearing the Holy Spirit and making the case. Yeah, you know, this is one, one of the reasons why in one chapter of the book I, take up, I actually address that issue. You know, if, if God is in charge and God is the one who draws, why do we need to get involved in this process at all and make the case? And how I try to, to explain it is with this analogy I use of my son in the, the mushroom pizza, this idea that if getting saved required you to, to voluntarily, willingly want and then order a mushroom pizza, well, then my son would never get saved because he hates mushrooms. He would never willingly order a mushroom pizza. So I could spend all day making a case for how great mushroom pizza is, and it would be futile because he is not, he hates mushrooms. Forget about it. He's not even going to touch it. So the question becomes, well, how do I make this happen? Well, what if somehow I could remove his enmity toward mushrooms? If somehow I could just, I could just put that switch and remove his hostility toward mushrooms, well, then I could make this case and he might consider it and go, well, you know what? Um, all right, that does sound pretty good. And now under his new nature in which the switch has been flipped and he no longer hates mushrooms, he makes what to him, from his perspective, is an absolutely free choice. He's choosing what he now wants under his new nature. Now look what happens here. Now you see in a sense that his free will has been maintained, but it never would have happened unless the hatred toward pepperoni or toward mushroom switch had been flipped. And I think this is what happens really in, in, in when we read through scripture and we recognize that nobody, everybody has, a, no one is seeking God. Nobody's interest. We're all autonomous creatures who are selfishly self-interested. And with, unless God does something first to flip that switch, none of us will even be interested in God. And of course, that is what's happening first, is that's what's removing the enemy. This happened to me. I was not even interested in the case for Christianity. And then one day I was, and I started to investigate it. And I spent six months investigating it and determined it was true. But what even, I used to think, why all of a sudden am I interested in this? I never would have spent, I never would have wasted my time on this prior. And now suddenly I'm interested. Why is that? Well, that's what God's doing. That's the, the, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Now you might ask yourself, well, couldn't God's Spirit simply go all the way? Did we skip the evidence altogether? Just flip the switch and I'm now in. Of course, God could. And in many cases, I'm sure God does. But when, when I'm in that pizza shop with my son and he's trying to figure out if he should order a mushroom pizza, I think God loves two people in that shop. He loves my son enough to flip the switch so that he's now interested. But he loves me enough to allow me the opportunity that I, he clearly doesn't need me in this process. But he allows me to learn and to make that case because in that process of doing that, I am discipled more and more committed to God, and, and I'm maturing in my faith. So there are two people, and it's all God's grace all the way down, both from the election process in which he is flipping that switch for my son, and in the sanctification process in which he is allowing me a role that he clearly doesn't need to allow me. 
steps. But I think this is kind of how I see this process for us as evidentialists. It's not that we are denying God's supernatural work that precedes us and is more important than anything else. It's that we just see our small role here that God has allowed us for some purpose. And it turns out it does as much for me as I'm making the case to my son as it does for my son who's assessing the case. Yeah, and you see in Scripture, for example, Paul the Apostle, what was he but an amazing case maker? Oh, absolutely. This is, yeah, this is it's exactly right. This is what I try to make in, in the book and show that there, there's virtually not a single place. If you said, no, look, you don't need to have a case made for you evidentially. You just need to trust what the Bible says. Well, okay, let's back up a second. What is that Bible? It's not a collection of eyewitness accounts in which each author is trying to convince us that they either had access to the eyewitness, so they're telling us something that is true, or they are themselves the eyewitness, so they're saying that this is true. And you see this over and over again. Why does Paul even make a sense? Hey, am I not also an apostle? Did I not also see Jesus on the road to Damascus? Why make that case? Because he knows it's his eyewitness status that is important to his reader. And, and that's important. That's called direct evidence. So if it, and we say we, we just trust what the Bible says, well, you're trusting an account of, of direct evidence uh, that is being recorded in Scripture. You cannot get away from the sense that you are trusting something evidential in order to make any assessment about Christianity, because if all you're doing is trusting the account, well, these accounts in the historical narratives are eyewitness accounts. And that's the, the problem. You just can't. There's no way to turn your back on the evidential nature of Christianity especially when you consider that the autographs, or I should say the manuscripts of Christianity, have a historicity that is unrivaled in the ancient world. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we can, we can test these as eyewitness accounts, but some people will even make the claim, these are was never intended to be eyewitness accounts, really. So when you read the end of John's article, of John's Gospel, in which he talks about how there were many more, I mean, it's clear, he's saying that, and you'll see that both John and Peter in their letters will make claims that they are eyewitnesses. Look, in the end, somebody, and if you don't think that's John the Apostle who wrote that account, okay, fine. It's a John somebody who claimed to see it. So if, for me... It wouldn't even have mattered if this was John the Apostle or John somebody else. My only concern is, is this supposedly, allegedly, an eyewitness who claimed to have been there? Because that's all I need to know. The, the status of that eyewitness doesn't really matter to me. Where he falls in the plethora of, of uh, leadership within the early church doesn't really matter to me. But the question is, is this allegedly reporting something that supposedly happened? That's when I get involved. So, so I, for me, right away, I knew that, that this was, and I didn't expect that because I didn't know enough about Scripture. You know, I kind of thought when I first opened the Bible, that, and I was only looking for the wisdom statements of Jesus, what does Jesus say? And I kind of thought it would be like, um, like the Gospel of Thomas, where you have a bunch of proverbial wisdom statements of Jesus, or like the writings of Baha'u'llah, of the Baha'i faith, which are very much proverbial, I hate to say this, but kind of like, you know, like fortune cookie uh, spirituality, you know, where you open that fortune cookie and it gives you some wise saying. <laughs> I didn't realize that, that I had no idea that this whole Bible was divided between not just prophetic statements, but what they claim to be recorded histories more than the Old and the New Testament. So, so that really gave me a, uh, some confidence to know that, well, okay, if somebody should have a skill set in place, that can actually assess some of these claims. We, sh we should be able to find some evidence. Again, I don't expect, when you say you're going to corroborate something, again, why would we even take this? This is what Forensic Faith is about. It's about how do we corroborate stuff? And, and what are the kind of daily disciplines 
that in one sh- one section of the book is just on the daily disciplines of investigators. You know, like we we are list makers, we are diagram drawers, we are we have certain things we do when we approach a supplemental report. I'll, I don't just take that supplemental report out of the notebook from 30 years ago that that officer wrote 30 years ago. I make four copies of it, and then I sit down and I examine the copies, and I'm just I'm writing all over them. To, to see, you know, what what do I need from this? Okay, I missed that before, you know, and what am I assessing them for? I talk about this in Forensic Faith. What are the principles we use when we assess those documents? We're, we're, the same thing could be done with Scripture, because this is a, a allegedly an account about something that happened in the distant past. So I think the same skill stick could be applied to, to Scripture. One of the things I've really enjoyed about your books is how pr- it seems like pretty much each chapter has a little bit of background from your a career in law enforcement, which makes it very interesting. You know, and that's and that's a good point you're, you're bringing up, and I try to do that um, for a couple of reasons. You know, one because I know that um, we're we're talking about stuff. Now, why don't we do, like, say, for example, with forensic statement analysis? I, I will see a lot of historical, uh, you know, kind of literature, uh, li- literary critics take uh, observe similar things. And, and uh, they'll say, well, look at this, the way this is phrased, and if we look at how that language is used, it often meant this, so maybe it means that here, too. Very valid approach to, to, to looking at language in an ancient document. Now, if I was going to teach that to the church at large, and I took an approach and said, I'm going to teach you some, some uh, you know, uh, literary analysis or historical, I mean, I think to be honest with you, I'd, I'd have a very small audience for that. And I think it's important. I mean, I wish the audience would be bigger, but if I said, I've got a book here written by a historian of ancient uh, manuscripts, only a small percentage of us is going to think that that's something they want to pick up. Now, if I said to you, I have uh, um, an approach here that could teach you how to be a better detective, for some reason, whether it's good, bad, or otherwise, uh, people are more interested in, in giving you a hearing. And so I, I just I just try to stay in that lane because I think in the end I'm not there's nothing nothing new under the sun and I'm not I'm certainly not presenting much in terms of, I'm just contextualizing it in a way that I hope people will say yeah you know I get it now I, I didn't get it before but now I get it because I've watched so many dramas that involve detective stories and everyone is so innately familiar with this um, in the culture that they can kind of see, oh yeah, I know if I saw him say that, I would think he is lying if I was watching a detective show. Well, why can't that same principle be applied to some ancient text? Of course it could, but you haven't thought of it that way maybe before, and I'm hoping that my books will help you think of it that way. It's one of those things, It's I don't know if it's the CSI effect or if it's just, I mean, the the, the name of the book, Forensic Faith, wonderful name. It's, it's one of those things that, that, like you said, it'll get people interested. Yeah, one of the reasons why I thought it was kind of, uh, I wanted to, to call it that, is, uh, well, of course, you know, it makes, it makes sense in terms of my work, but more importantly, that work, uh, that word forensic, it comes from a, uh, a Latin word that really means to, to, to make a case publicly, to, to do it in like to, to, to say this is more than your experience because experiences are usually privately held, right? You've had some experience, and unless I tell you about it, it's privately held. But, but to make a public case means I have to point to things that can be assessed publicly, not just privately. And I thought that was such a great way to, to think about what we're trying to do with our Christian worldview because this is, there's, we, we, we don't want to hold it as though it's a subjective claim, a matter of personal private opinion, a private fancy, as uh, C.S. Lewis might call it. We, we want to, 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 to be able to communicate it as something that it really is, which is an objective reality, an objective truth that is true for all of us, whether we like it or not. 
and and that's really um, why I love that word forensic because we we of course associate it with with uh, you know investigations and criminal investigations, but if you look at the real root of the word, it really speaks to I think exactly what we're trying to do as Christians. What I've tried to do here is now kind of complete a trilogy, right? You've got a case for Christianity and cold case Christianity, a case for God and, and from science and philosophy and, and, and God's crime scene, and now a case for making the case. So I think that you're, if you if you really wanted to start in a particular order, right, I've kind of written them backwards because because you have to make a case for making the case before you can make the case for God, and then the case for God really before you can make the case for Christianity. Um, and so so you know of course when I when I first started thinking about writing these three books, I presented all three of these books to the publisher at the same time, and we just for whatever reason went in this order. So I think that my my goal here is that, that this is this is a very accessible book, Forensic Faith, and it's a call. To, it, to rethinking the word faith so that you can um, actually rethink the way we live our faith. Think about this for a second. In my first book, I wrote about the guy who stood firm in the bulletproof vest because he knew he had seen it in the range to stop bullets. So in a shooting, he decided he didn't need to run or duck or dive behind something. Although he was second to the draw, he didn't have his gun out when the other off, when the other uh, assailant started shooting. He he didn't have his gun drawn yet, so he knew he was going to be the second or third or fourth shot in the shootout. But he stood there firmly and unflinchingly because he knew he was wearing his bulletproof vest. And so he just thought, I'm just going to trust it to take the first couple of rounds and I'll return fire. And I, I didn't talk about this in the book, in the first book, but, but, but one of the things that gives you the kind of confidence that you'll stand firm and live differently tomorrow is being evidentially certain about something yesterday. And because he was evidentially certain about the vest, because he didn't stop bullets, evidentially, he'd seen it with his own eyes. But then he was, and he also had kind of read about the, and like he came in and gave us a present, you know, they always give us a presentation. Here's what the Kevlar material looks like. Here's why it's woven the way it is. We take out the Kevlar and they show us, they take a cross section, blah, 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 blah. The point is he had lots of good evidence that, that indicated he could trust that vest was true in his claims about stopping a bullet. And that's why he lived differently on the day of the shooting. He just stood there calmly. And I think uh, that kind of evidential certainty does, re does result in a different kind of response from us. We are more certain and we're more calm and we're more confident. Because, you know, it's not like I haven't heard that objection before. It's not like I haven't examined that objection. How many times have you seen a young person who maybe has not heard the ob I do this one talk. And Jason, I'll tell you, it shakes people up. It's the talk on artifacts and evidence in the first book where I simply make the claims of Bart Ehrman in Jesus Interrupted about the number of variants between the earliest manuscripts we have of the uh, New Testament. Now, of course, I think that it's vastly overstated and is absolutely easily resolved. And I show that in the talk. But before I show the resolution, how to resolve it, I just pitch the problem in its most robust form to my audience so they can see what it is that Bart is describing in the book. And as I pitch it, people are like shocked. They've never heard it before. They've never read his book. And you can see that for some people, they're like, oh my gosh, is that true? They've never heard this objection before. There are variants between the ancient manuscripts. We don't have the, some people don't even know we have, don't have the original autographs until you tell them. And I thought to myself, well, okay, so if you didn't know that in advance and also know how 
to resolve that and how we have been able to resolve that and why evidentially we can have confidence that our Bibles today contain what was in the original. If you didn't know how to do that, you're going to be shaken. And if the first time you're hearing that is at a college class where the professor is teaching a Bible 101 course and he's not even a believer, um, then you're going to you're going to lack the kind of peace, calm, and confidence that the officer had, only because he knew that that vest could stop bullets. So in the end. I want us to know the objections, to have read through the objections, and know how to resolve the objections so that when we hear them downfield, we'll go, yeah, been there, done that, bought a t-shirt. I already know how to resolve that issue. And then we're a little more calm and confident in our response. As we uh, wrap up here, is there anything else you want to say? Well, you know, a lot of what we do is that we, you know, we sell books because the, the most robust way is to get an idea across is to write it out in forty to seventy thousand words. But what we're really interested is in training Christians daily, and we try to do that with absolutely free materials five days a week at ColdCaseChristianity.com. Those are all PDFs you can download every day, videos you can download, Bible inserts you can download, and all that stuff is absolutely free. Well over a thousand pieces of content that you can download at that website right now and our hope is that you know it's it's funny when I was an atheist I used to hate Christians who were selling stuff because I felt like do they really believe this or they just selling something and now of course God's got a sense of humor I'm a Christian years later selling books so I think I've just learned that um, what you want here is people to take a step and to, to kind of rethink what, how they uh, view certain things. And of course, books are the most robust way to do that. But if, if you want to just visit our website, you'll see that we have do have free daily materials there that you can get that'll help you also walk each day. Thank you, Jay Warner Wallace. Find out more about him and take advantage of his free resources at coldcasechristianity.com. Well, it's about that time the end of the show but do not fret my friend there are many more stories at talesoftherevolution.com and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes Stitcher, Google Play Music and anywhere you get podcasts and remember I love stories and I want to hear yours shoot me an email jason at talesoftherevolution.com Until next time, remember what Jesus said, that everyone on the side of truth listens to him. Do that, won't you, as you live the revolution.